Chapter Twenty Nine of Marcia Schuyler by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Nine. A coach was approaching, filled with people. Some of them Marcia knew. They were friends and neighbors from their own village, and behind it, plodding along, came a horse with a strangely familiar gait, drawing four people. The driver was old Mister Heath, looking unbelievingly at the scene before him. He did not believe that an engine would be able to haul a train any appreciable distance whatever, and he believed that he had come out here to witness this entire company of fanatics circumvented by the ill-natured iron steed who stood on the track ahead, surrounded by gaping boys and a flock of quacking ganders, living symbol of the people who had come to see the thing start. So thought Mr. Heath. He told himself he was as much of a goose as any of them to have let this chit of a woman fool him into coming off out here when he ought to have been in the hayfield today. By his side, in all the glory of shimmering blue, with a wide white lace bertha and a bonnet with a steeple crown wreathed about heavily with roses, sat Kate, a blue silk parasol shading her eyes from the sun, those eyes that looked to conquer and seemed to pierce beyond and through her sister, and ignore her. Old Mrs. Heath and Miranda were along, but they did not count, except to themselves. Miranda was all eyes under an ugly bonnet. She desired above all things to see that wonderful engine in which David was so interested. Marcia shrunk and seemed to wither where she sat. All her bright bloom faded in an instant, and a kind of frenzy seized her. She had a wild desire to get down out of the carriage and run with all her might away from this hateful scene. The sky seemed to have suddenly clouded over, and the hum and buzz of voices about seemed a babble that would never cease. David felt the arm beside his cringe and shrink back, and looking down saw the look upon her sweet frightened face. Following her glance, his own face hardened into what might have been termed righteous wrath. But not a word did he say, and neither did he apparently notice the oncoming carriage. He busied himself at once talking with a man who happened to pass the carriage, and when Mr. Heath drove by to get a better view of the engine, he was so absorbed in his conversation that he did not notice them, which seemed but natural. But Kate was not to be thus easily foiled. She had much at stake, and she must win if possible. She worked it about that Squire Heath should drive around to the end of the line of coaches, quite out of sight of the engine, and where there was little chance of seeing the train and its passengers, the only thing Squire Heath cared about. But there was an excellent view of David's carriage, and Kate would be within hailing distance if it should transpire that she had no further opportunity of speaking with David. It seemed strange to Squire Heath, as he sat there behind the last coach patiently, that he had done what she asked. She did not look like a woman who was timid about horses, yet she had professed a terrible fear that the screech of the engine should frighten the staid old Heath horse. Miranda, at that, had insisted upon changing seats, thereby getting herself nearer the horse and the scene of action. Miranda did not like to miss seeing the engine start. At last, word to start was given. A man ran along by the train and mounted into his high seat with his horn in his hand ready to blow. 
the fireman ceased his raking of the glowing fire, and every traveller sprang into his seat and looked toward the crowd of spectators importantly. This was a great moment for all interested. The little ones whose fathers were in the train began to call good-bye and wave their hands, and one old lady whose only son was going as one of the train assistants began to sob aloud. A horse in the crowd began to act badly. Every snort of the engine as the steam was let off made him start and rear. He was directly behind Marcia, and she turned her head and looked straight into his fiery frightened eyes, red with fear and frenzy, and felt his hot breath upon her cheek. A man was trying most ineffectually to hold him, but it seemed as if in another minute he would come plunging into the seat with them. Marcia uttered a frightened cry and clutched at David's arm. He turned, and seeing instantly what was the matter, placed his arm protectingly about her, and at once guided his own horse out of the crowd and around nearer to the engine. Somehow that protecting arm gave Marcia a steadiness once more, and she was able to watch the wonderful wheels begin to turn, and the whole train slowly move and start on its way. Her lips parted, her breath came quick, and for the instant she forgot her trouble. David's arm was still about her, and there was a reassuring pressure in it. He seemed to have forgotten that the crowd might see him, if the crowd had not been too busy watching something more wonderful. It is probable that only one person in that whole company saw David sitting with his arm about his wife, for he soon remembered and put it quietly on the back of the seat, where it would call no one's attention, and that person was Kate. She had not come to this hot, dusty place to watch an engine creak along a track. She had come to watch David, and she was vexed and angry at what she saw. Here was Marcia flaunting her power over David directly in her face. Spiteful thing! She would pay her back yet, and let her know that she could not touch the things that she, Kate, had put her own sign and seal upon. For this reason it was that at the last minute Kate allowed poor Squire Heath to drive around near the front of the train, saying that as David Spafford seemed to find it safe, she supposed she ought not to hold them back for her fears. It needed but the word to send the vexed and curious squire around through the crowd to a spot directly behind David's carriage, and there Miranda could see quite well, and Kate could sit and watch David and frame her plans for immediate action so soon as the curtain should fall upon this ridiculous engine play over which everybody was wild. And so, amid shouts and cheers, and squawking of the geese that attempted to precede the engine like a white frightened bodyguard down the track, amid the waving of handkerchiefs, the shouts of excited little boys, and the neighing of frightened horses, the first steam engine that ever drew a train in New York State started upon its initial trip. Then there came a great hush upon the spectators assembled. The wheels were rolling, the carriages were moving, the train was actually going by them, and what had been so long talked about was an assured fact. They were seeing it with their own eyes, and might be witnesses of it to all their acquaintances. It was true. They dared not speak nor breathe, lest something should happen and the great miracle should stop. They hushed simultaneously as though at the passing of some great soul. They watched in silence until the train went on between the meadows, 
grew smaller in the distance, slipped into the shadow of the wood, flashed out into the sunlight beyond again, and then was lost behind a hill. A low murmur growing rapidly into a shout of cheer arose as the crowd turned and faced one another and the fact of what they had seen. "'By gum, she can do it!' ejaculated Squire Heath, who had watched the melting of his skeptical opinions in speechless amazement. The words were the first intimation the Spaffords had of the proximity of Kate. They made David smile, but Marcia turned white with sudden fear again. Not for nothing had she lived with her sister so many years. She knew that cruel nature and dreaded it. David looked at Marcia for sympathy in his smile at the old squire, but when he saw her face, he turned frowning toward those behind him. Kate saw her opportunity. She leaned forward with honeyed smile, and wily as the serpent addressed her words to Marcia, loud and clear enough for all those about them to hear. "'Oh, Mrs. Spafford, I am going to ask a great favor of you.' I am sure you will grant it when you know I have so little time. I am extremely anxious to get a word of advice from your husband upon business matters that are very pressing. Would you kindly change places with me during the ride home, and give me a chance to talk with him about it? I would not ask it, but that I must leave for New York on the evening coach, and shall have no other opportunity to see him." Kate's smile was roses and cream, touched with frosty sunshine, and to onlookers nothing could have been sweeter. But her eyes were coldly cruel as sharpened steel, and they said to her sister, as plainly as words could have spoken, Do you obey my wish, my lady, or I will freeze the heart out of you? Marcia turned white and sick. She felt as if her lips had suddenly stiffened and refused to obey her when they ought to have smiled. What would all these people think of her, and how she was behaving? For David's sake, she ought to do something, say something, look something. But what, what should she do? While she was thinking this, with the freezing in her heart creeping up to her throat, the great tears beating at the portals of her eyes, and time standing suddenly still, waiting for her leaden tongue to speak, David answered. All gracefully t'was done, with not so much as a second's hesitation, though it had seemed so long to Marcia, nor the shadow of a sign that he was angry. Mrs. Leavenworth, he said in his masterful voice, I am sure my wife would not wish to seem ungracious or unwilling to comply with your request, but as it happens, it is impossible. We are not returning home for several days. My wife has some shopping to do in Albany, and in fact we are expecting to take a little trip. A sort of second honeymoon, you know, he added, smiling toward Mrs. Heath and Miranda. It is the first time I have had leisure to plan for it since we were married. I am sorry I have to hurry away, but I am sure that my friend Squire Heath can give as much help in a business way as I could, and furthermore, Squire Schuyler is now in New York for a few days, as I learned in a letter from him which arrived last evening. I am sure he can give you more and better advice than any I could give. I wish you good morning. Good morning, Mrs. Heath. Good morning, Miss Miranda. Lifting his hat, David drove away from them and straight over to the little wayside hostelry where he was to finish his article to send by the messenger 
who was even then ready mounted for the purpose. "'My, don't he think a lot of her, though,' said Miranda, rolling the words as a sweet morsel under her tongue. "'It must be nice to have a man so fond of you.' This was one of the occasions when Miranda wished she had eyes in the back of her head. She was sharp, and she had seen a thing or two, also she had heard scraps of her cousin Hannah's talk but she sat demurely in the recesses of her deep, ugly bonnet, and tried to imagine how the guest behind her looked. All trembling sat Marcia in the rusty parlor of the little hostelry, while David at the table wrote with hurried hand, glancing up to her to smile now and then, and passing over the sheets as he finished them for her criticism. She thought she had seen the heath wagon drive away in the home direction, but she was not sure. She half expected to see the door open and Kate walk in. Her heart was thumping so she could hardly sit still, and the brightness of the world outside seemed to make her dizzy. She was glad to have the sheets to look over, for it took her thoughts away from herself and her nameless fears. She was not quite sure what it was she feared, only that in some way Kate would have power over David to take him away from her. As he wrote, she studied the dear lines of his face, and knew, as well as human heart may ever know, how dear another soul had grown to hers. David had not much to write, and it was soon signed, approved, and sealed. He sent his messenger on the way, and then coming back, closed the door and went and stood before Marcia. As though she felt some critical moment had come, she arose, trembling, and looked into his eyes questioningly. Marcia, he said, and his tone was grave and earnest, putting her upon an equality with him, not as if she were a child any more. Marcia, I have come to ask your forgiveness for the terrible thing I did to you in allowing you, who scarcely knew what you were doing then, to give your life away to a man who loved another woman. Marcia's heart stood still with horror. It had come then, that dreadful thing she had feared the blow was going to fall. He did not love her. What a fool she had been! But the steady voice went on, though the blood in her neck and temples throbbed in such loud waves that she could scarcely hear the words to understand them. It was a crime, Marcia, and I have come to realize it more and more, during all the days of this year, that you have so uncomplainingly spent yourself for me. I know now, as I did not think then in my careless, selfish sorrow, that I was as cruel to you with your sweet young life as your sister was cruel to me. You might already have given your heart to someone else. I never stopped to inquire. You might have had plans and hopes for your own future. I never even thought of it. I was a brute. Can you forgive me? Sometimes the thought of the responsibility I took upon myself has been so terrible to me that I felt I could not stand it. You did not realize what it was then that you were giving, perhaps, but somehow I think you have begun to realize now. Will you forgive me? He stopped and looked at her anxiously. She was drooped and white as if a blast had suddenly struck her and faded her sweet bloom. Her throat was hot and dry, and she had to try three times before she could frame the words, Yes, I forgive. There was no hope, no joy in the words. 
and a sudden fear descended upon David's heart. Had he then done more damage than he knew? Was the child's heart broken by him, and did she just realize it? What could he do? Must he conceal his love from her? Perhaps this was no time to tell it, but he must. He could not bear the burden of having done her harm, and not also tell her how he loved her. He would be very careful, very considerate, he would not press his love as a claim, but he must tell her. And Marcia, I must tell you the rest, he went on, his own words seeming to stay upon his lips, and then tumble over one another. I have learned to love you as I never loved your sister. I love you more and better than I ever could have loved her. I can see how God has led me away from her and brought me to you. I can look back to that night when I came to her and found you there waiting for me and kissed you, darling. Do you remember? He took her cold little trembling hands and held them firmly as he talked, his whole soul in his face, as if his life depended upon the next few moments. I was troubled at the time, dear, for having kissed you, and given you the greeting that I thought belonged to her. I have rebuked myself for thinking since how lovely you looked as you stood there in the moonlight. But afterward I knew that it was you, after all, that my love belonged to, and to you rightfully the kiss should have gone. I am glad it was so glad that God overruled my foolish choosing. Lately I have been looking back to that night I met you at the gate, and feeling jealous that that meeting was not all ours, that it should be shadowed for us by the heartlessness of another. It gives me much joy now to think how I took you in my arms and kissed you. I cannot bear to think it was a mistake. Yet glad as I am that God sent you down to that gate to meet me, and much as I love you, I would rather have died than feel that I have brought sorrow into your life, and bound you to one to whom you cannot love. Marcia, tell me truly, never mind my feelings, tell me. Can you ever love me? Then did Marcia lift her flower-like face, all bright with tears of joy and a flood of rosy smiles, the light of seven stars in her eyes. But she could not speak. She could only, after a little, whisper, Oh, David, I think I have always loved you. I think I was waiting for you that night, though I did not know it. And look, with sudden thought. She drew from the folds of her dress a little old-fashioned locket hung by a chain about her neck out of sight. She opened it and showed him a soft gold curl, which she touched gently with her lips, as though it were something very sacred. What is it, darling? asked David, perplexed half happy, half afraid as he took the locket and touched the curl, more thrilled with the thought that she had carried it next to her heart than with the sight of it. "'It is yours,' she said, disappointed that he did not understand. "'Aunt Clorinda gave it to me while you were away. I've worn it ever since. And she gave me other things and told me all about you. I know it all, about the tops and the marbles and the spelling book, and I've cried with you over your punishments, and I love it all. He had fastened the door before he began to talk, but he caught her in his arms now, regardless of the fact that the shades were not drawn down, and that they swayed in the summer breeze. Oh, my darling, my wife, he cried, and kissed her lips for the third time. 
the world was changed then for those two they belonged to each other they believed as no two that ever walked through eden had ever belonged when they thought of the precious bond that bound them together their hearts throbbed with a happiness that well nigh overwhelmed them a dinner of stewed chickens and little white soda biscuits was served them fit for a wedding breakfast for the maid whispered to the cook that she was sure there was a bride and groom in the parlor they looked so happy and seemed to forget everybody else was by but it might have been ham and eggs for all they knew what it was they ate these two who were so happy they could but look into each other's eyes when the dinner was over and they started on their way again with albany shimmering in the hot sun in the distance and david's arms sliding from the top of the seat to circle marcia's waist david whispered this is our real wedding journey dearest and this is our bridal day we'll go to albany and buy you a trousseau and then we will go wherever you wish i can stay a whole week if you wish would you like to go home for a visit marcia with shining eyes and glowing cheeks looked her love into his face and answered yes now i would like to go home just for a few days and then back to our home and david looking into her eyes understood why she had not wanted to go before she was taking her husband her husband not kate's with her now and might be proud of his love she could go among her old comrades and be happy for he loved her he looked a moment comprehended sympathized and then pressing her hand close for he might not kiss her as there was a load of hay coming their way he said darling but their eyes said more end of chapter twenty nine end of marcia schuyler by grace livingston hill read by tricia g